Welcome to Bread and Milk. I'm Naomi Devlin and I'll be taking you on a soothing ramble through the food memories of some of my favourite people. So we've made it to podcast number two and my guest today is Gil Meller. And I've known Gil, I mean I can't quite believe it, but I've known him for over 10 years now. And yet, we never sit down really to chat because we're past like ships in the night at River Cottage where he also teaches. And in fact, he's been teaching there for many, many years. Uh, I've only done 10 years. I, I don't know how many years he's done there. And he essentially, along with Hugh Fernley Whittingsall, is the essence of River Cottage. And what he does and what he teaches is very much about being in the place and of the place where you are and making food that expresses your connection to the land and your respect for produce. Uh, His food is beautiful and has, it walks that amazingly fine line between food that is earthy and food that comes from the fire, the kind of thing that you might make on a barbecue with charred edges and big hunks of meat and then beautiful salads with shaved vegetables and herbs that he's grown himself and things that he may have foraged and, and the, the whole kind of feeling about his food is that it has this incredible simple delicacy and I know from eating it that it's in amazingly delicious. So he's written many books, he's contributed to Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's books and many of the River Cottage handbooks. Uh, check him out, he has a beautiful uh, Instagram uh, account as well and he's very uh, generous with his time and with his recipes he publishes recipes all over the place and obviously just has an endless font of inspiration within him because it's always seems to be fresh and new so absolutely check him out he also sprinkles uh, little whimsical bits of poetry and thoughtful pieces of writing uh, into his books and uh, they really give you a sense of him as someone who is very reflective and you'll hear from when he talks that he has an incredibly grounding presence. There's no hurry to him, he's an incredibly humble man and he's not one to shout about his accomplishments, many though they are. Uh, We talked, generally we talked a little bit about his childhood Uh, but also about the kind of experience of cooking in place and his gills thing is particularly uh, you'll see from his Instagram account he's always down on the beach there's a beach underneath uh, the house where he lives literally his house is on a cliff uh, um, it's called the Undercliff at Lyme and below him is a beach that only the residents of that particular area can use uh, and it's because it's a pebble beach it's clear sea he can go down he can make fires with the driftwood on the beach although we discover in that chat that he shouldn't really be doing that uh, and apparently there's something wrong with cooking um, over salty wood 
Gil does not want to know the reason uh, because that might mean he has to stop doing it. And I completely understand. Sometimes you just got to carry on doing what you love, even if someone else says it's the wrong thing to do. So we talk about cooking over fire, we talk about mushrooms and catching fish, uh, and also we uh, talk about uh, Gil nearly poisoning a celebrity who I can't divulge who it is, but I know exactly who it is because I've cooked from that celebrity too. <laughs> and um, luckily I also didn't poison them, so um, they've escaped twice. We talked for ages and then Gil remembered that he had an appointment he had to rush off for, so uh, the conversation ends quite abruptly and uh, Gil talked about his mother um, and how she passed on uh, the mantle of uh, being the kind of chef of the house, I guess. And I understand because I've lost my very dear mother-in-law and Gil has lost his mother, how important those little memories of loved ones you've lost are. So prepare yourself to feel a little bit tearful at the end because I certainly did when the conversation finished. Yeah, so I was fishing with my friend down at uh, this weir, which is um, just down from a village called West Milton. Beautiful stretch of river. And I wasn't sure actually if we were allowed to fish there or not, but we were after trout. And we used to go down quite regularly. We'd, we'd try all sorts of techniques uh, to get these trout because we knew they were there. Um, we even did the uh, sort of crocodile dundee um, explosive trick where you know they, they throw dynamite obviously we didn't have dynamite but we um we did have uh, packets of french bangers that we used to light and lob into the weir and try and you know well hope these trout would come floating to the surface obviously <laughs> did that, they that work no in the water? That, but i mean it, did they even no, explode well some of the big ones it wouldn't oh. put the wick out okay um and and they would they would explode, but we never got got the trout that way. But but uh, at some point over that summer, we did catch it on on a you know a hook, um, the the normal way, yeah. and it was a really good sized fish, maybe a couple of pounds, and we we knocked it on the head, and neither of us had ever sort of caught and eaten trout before. We didn't know how to cook it. So on that occasion, we took it back home to my, to my uh, house and we showed mum and she said, well, I'll cook it for you. And she gutted it and prepared it and got it ready uh, for, the, for the oven, I think. I think she just roasted it with some herbs and things, uh, maybe some slices of lemon and, and a bit of butter perhaps. And she served it to us just as it was made maybe with some bread and I tell you what I remember it so clearly because it was such a sort of poignant food experience having caught the fish taken it home and it it being cooked for us it just tasted incredible really mm. really wonderful sort of wild trout um, so different to the farm stuff mm. and that taste of you know, the, the sort of fresh water, that river water. Um, wonderful, yeah. And I've always loved trout since. I still mm. still think it's it's one of the best 
best fish, really. Um, and if you get it from the right source, you know, and, it's, and they're farmed in the right way, they can be a, a sort of sustainable option, far more sustainable than salmon, mm. um, in my opinion, because you know, they're farmed in a closed system and, and it's not affecting uh, the sort of wider ecosystem in the same way. Because it's farm. fresh water, you mean, rather than seawater? Well, because they're farmed in a closed system, so, you know, it, it's, not, it's not sort of openly affecting other, uh, other sort of ecosystems, uh, you know, for example, the, you know, the ocean. Um, and how did it make you feel then? You said it was very poignant. What was, what was it that was poignant about that, catching the fish? It may seem obvious. Well, I think... At the time, it, it wasn't then, but looking back, I realized that, you know, th those experiences really sort of have a, an effect on you. Um, they, they sort of help to shape, you know, how you, how you feel about food and, and um, you know, the taste and the sensation of eating it and, and witnessing that, that sort of uh, river to to plate experience uh, didn't you know maybe back then it didn't have the it didn't didn't resonate as as it does now but did you have any feelings about killing it like was it just oh we just bash it on the head that's fine or or was it a moment of oh my goodness I've killed my first thing and eaten it I don't think we had any issues about dispatching it no um, there wasn't sort of any hesitation. Well, maybe there was, but I don't, I, I can't recollect that that was any sort of stumbling block or anything like that. Because um, when you're that age and I don't know, you, you don't, you're not so aware of, of the, the act of, of killing. I've got some, I've got some terrible memories of um, experiences with my air rifle that I, really regret in hindsight but then i didn't have any issue um, do, you, do you mean of shooting things when you didn't mean to <laughs> or shooting can, yourself in the leg or what <laughs> i know shooting birds and and things um, mm. um i do remember shooting a songbird once and i i sort of picked it up and took it down to show my dad and he went absolutely mad really? uh, he was so furious uh, and he made me bury it and he yeah he was very very disappointed in me i didn't realize the significance of of a songbird and how how not okay it was to you know, shoot them um just because yeah because you need to shoot things if you're going to eat them I yeah guess. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it wasn't a sort of pheasant or a rabbit or a rat or, you know, this was a, a sort of very innocent, beautiful songbird that only, that's, that's only sort of charge in life was to make music. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my God, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> um, it wasn't then, but I realised 
that my dad was right you know that is that was wasn't acceptable um, but i didn't feel that with the fish curiously because i was met with a very different response from my mum uh, i.e wow you know i'm going to cook this for you and you're going to see how good mm. fresh fish can be yeah so that was you know it's two very different sort of killing experiences very um, well which is i quite mean one, interesting one's know. meaningful as well isn't it you know one is is uh, uh catching something in order to provide which is ultimately our kind of raison d'etre isn't it you know we need to eat therefore we yeah. need to and so that's i mean we often say um if kids are struggling to eat or to enjoy food you know get them to grow something or get them to cook it and then mm. they have that connection with it and and they will always at least give it a go even if they think it's something they're not you know so so there's something about the lack of connection with food that that makes you less willing to try it i guess it's your natural instinct to protect yourself against things that are poisonous or you yes. know not not edible and if you take that out and you say look it's a you know here it is in the stream and you see how beautiful it is and then you know you're i mean that's but your mum didn't necessarily teach you how to gut it at that point but you were aware of the kind of process of getting it from stream yeah i think it was that connection between Yes, having been involved in in the growing, or in this case, the sort of catching of of what you're going to eat, um, that was really good. The other memory I have is of eating wild mushrooms. Mm. About a similar age, actually, I was probably sort of ten or or maybe eleven, uh, and I was with with my friend and we had this sort of base in in the in, at the top of a, a tree where the limbs met the trunk and we would climb up into this tree and, and sort of hang out there and it was in the autumn and there were these mushrooms growing below the tree and they looked like regular mushrooms. I didn't at the time, you know, I didn't actually know what what they were at the time. Uh, and we we picked them and we climbed the tree and we lit a small fire in the in the sort of bowl of this of this tree and put the mushrooms on sticks and just toasted them over this over this fire and ate them. And I will never forget the flavour of those mushrooms. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, the, the sort of that sort of, sort of gentle earthy sort of fungus flavor with the smoke um, no salt no pepper no olive oil you know nothing like that it was just the the most stripped back way of, of, of eating primal you know how how they they may have been eaten thousands of years so we ate them, sat there, and just it was just a sort of moment of sort of absolute calm and uh, sort of joy that that had been sort of evoked by this this process of eating this wild food.
That's just interesting, isn't it? Because that's another thing of doing it in the place where it's literally at the base of the tree. You're I know. Picking them. You're climbing up the tree. You're making a fire in the tree. <laughs> yeah. And then you're uh, cooking them like marshmallows on a stick. That's yes. such an image. It was great. I, I remember it so well. I wrote about it in, in one of my books. And yeah, I just look back at it as a very sort of fond memory. Uh, what what was interesting is, and going back to me referencing the mushrooms themselves, we had no idea if they were poisonous or not. That was the hilarious thing. It didn't even sort of enter our uh, enter our heads. I think they were horse mushrooms, which are like but big the, field mushrooms. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But they could have been something, you know, more sinister. Yeah. Luckily, I mean, luckily you could have we been were vomiting. <laughs> Yeah, could be not, not here to tell the story. No, gosh. Yeah, I mean, but then again, the innocence of youth, you know, you yeah. don't really think about these things. The luck. Oh, yeah. I remember when, when I was growing up, so I grew up in a commune and people would kind of go foraging for things, but, but almost with the same level of, of, or the same lack of knowledge as you had, these two guys came back and they'd found a load of mushrooms and they cooked them up and they had them for breakfast. And one of them was staying around, hanging around at the commune. And one of them went on, was going on a, a journey somewhere, a long kind of road trip. And, uh, and the guy who stayed back at the commune <laughs> started vomiting. Oh, and, and we were, and this is before we had mobile phones or anything. And we were all thinking, you know, we didn't know what he'd eaten and we were trying to identify it and calling the doctor and they were saying, you need to bring a sample of it. And, you know, blah, blah. And, uh, and we were just thinking, oh my goodness, this guy's on the road. He could be, you know, have a car crash or be lying in a ditch somewhere. We don't know if they're going to get kidney failure or <laughs> So oh my it turned goodness. out the guy on the road trip, absolutely fine. Not, really? not even a, you know, a fart. <laughs> um, and, but, there must have been something that the the first guy was sensitive to and yes uh, yeah isn't that i mean it, we were fully expecting that that you know it was a, a serious serious kind of poisoning case but it's always left me with a, an absolute respect for collecting things wild Absolutely. you know well i always remember john wright the the mushroom expert saying that people react differently you know you can have two people eat the same mushroom and, and one's very ill and the other's fine um, which is crazy isn't it how yeah. is that um i guess they have alkaloids in them and people are sensed to, you know everyone's different aren't they yes but you'd want to know in advance wouldn't you if you were serving that at a dinner <laughs> indeed there was one we had um we i had a guest come around a, a, a guy who spent the day cooking with me um, he was actually really famous. I won't say his name because um, you'll probably know who he is. I think I can guess. <laughs> <laughs> we went out picking mushrooms in the morning and we came back to the house and we, we did all sorts of different dishes and then it came to cooking the mushrooms. And um, I suddenly felt sort of compelled to check the, the mushroom guidebook because these... They, they were hedgehog mushrooms, but they didn't look like the normal hedgehog mushrooms that I'd, I'd been picking that, um, that autumn. They were slightly darker, more orange, smaller. Anyway, 
I couldn't find any reference to it. We'd already committed to the dish. We were cooking it. Um, I was sort of sweating inside. I was thinking, Jesus, we are, we're going to kill this celebrity. <laughs> but it was too late because he was stirring and seasoning and everyone was sort of excited. And we sat down to eat them. And, um, and that was that. And then, you know, the hours went by and he was still, still with us. But there, it, it was fine in the end, but I was, I was really terrified. Oh, um, God, that stress you don't need, isn't it? The, the thing was, I knew they were fine. I just, sort of, I just sort of panicked. I just sort of lost the plot for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> but it is that sort of thing, isn't it? If, if you're not, um, you know, I imagine John Wright would just say, oh, that's a such and such, or oh, that's, that's a such and such that's been living through this kind of season, and, and he would identify why it looked different. But if you're not seeing it all the time, uh, but it is that anxiety about poisoning yourself, isn't it? Which is so kind of primal. Yeah, yeah. How am I going to eat this and, and get really sick? You have a really strong connection to your environment, to literally the beach below your house and your garden and that comes through in your work that kind of sense of uh that it doesn't you're not located in an office you're located in your in the the place around yeah you. i've been fortunate in that um i've got these these spaces and uh that they've yes as you say they've sort of become part of my uh i've done i've don't want to say brand the way I think and yeah that's great you know could, mm. could be worse things to be associated with well and also it isn't just that you've been fortunate you've created that around you because it's really important to you so you've made uh, made it a priority um, and people may not know that you built your house and that you've um, you know, and that over lockdown, you made the most amazing and beautiful raised bed garden, and and that that is all a conscious choice, isn't it? Yes, yes, it's definitely been a conscious choice. Everything I do is has been a de decision I thought is going to sort of improve or add to the, you know the short life that we've that we've got. It's totally about quality of life, isn't it? I mean, for me, uh, I know your wife, Alice, sea swims just like me. Yes. And, um, and that's only something I've started doing since last summer. Uh, and, uh, and my decision, exactly the same as you, to say, OK, I'm, I'm actively going to try to do things that bring me joy. And not in a kind of, I'm going to you know, kick my heels up, but that I'm going to make a conscious decision about what I do. And so my thing is I make time to go to the sea and mm. each time I do, it's different. And what I found this year is that my, um, and normally I get February blues. I'm just like, <clears throat> I'm over the winter. Yeah. Uh, there's the hungry gap coming, you know, nothing is good about this time of year. And this time, this February, I was aware of the mist and the, the some days when it was completely gray and there would be like gray sky, gray sea, misty cliffs. And it was beautiful. And mm. I was in the middle of it rather than stuck in my house, you know, with the heating on, feeling mm. kind of uh, waiting for summer to arrive. Yeah. I'm 
uh, and so I think that th there's something about what you do, which is about being in the place you're in a hundred percent and uh, eating from it and making a fire and and all of that is about totally being in it rather than kind of creating something which is not of the place that you're in. Yeah. We spend so much time working, you know, in, in, in a sort of modern way you know, on, on the phones and laptops, that the, this disconnect with nature is, is just getting bigger and bigger. Mm. And to, you know, immerse yourself in the ocean for 20 minutes or to listen to the birds and mm. go for a walk, that, that, they're so, they're, that's so important. So important because it it strengthens that bond and that understanding of nature um, that we all need to have if we're going to sort of have any sort of hope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, I mean, apparently it does also. You know, there there are studies showing it it reduces cortisol levels, and you know, you can actually see that it does. It does help yeah. that thing that you're saying of not doing things that are stressful. It is literally doing the opposite, which is uh, telling your body, you know, the, 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 your kind of circadian rhythms are in tune mm. with what's out there, not what's in the house and the lights and all of that. And so some of that, even just, um, I was talking to someone the other day, we did a moonlight swim oh, and, nice. uh, and they were saying, oh, I've become really aware of the moon. And so they were kind of looking at the moon every day and thinking, yeah. like, oh, it's full moon. And so now I'll swim. And, uh, and um, they'd found that their periods had started to change to, oh, really? to come in line with the moon. And I was like, wow. well, of course, because you're putting your attention out there into the environment that which is where your body is naturally kind of most at peace or yeah. feels most naturally um, settled. And so, yes. yeah, of course. I mean, every morning it looks different. Mm. Um, the light, the, the, the shape of the sea, the, the mm. waves, the, 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 the wind, everything that affects it. was it that started you cooking on fire because you've really moved outside haven't you You didn't always cook outside on fire but yeah that seems to be your kind of natural place now i really love the the stripped back approach um so my sort of over fire cooking really is like sort of basic stuff it's sort of you know campfire mm. cooking um I'm not really enthralled by being a sort of fire chef. You know, I'm not, I'm not overly keen on all the sort of all singing, all dancing barbecues and eggs and, you know, grills. And I don't want to be the sort, I don't want to be that kind of chef necessarily. Mm. Uh, I just like something calm and simple and ancient and gentle and you can find that in a in, in a fire on the ground mm. um there 
is something that you know very as we've mentioned before some, something very sort of primal about that that whole process of, of lighting a fire and cooking something nice to eat over it or you know sustaining yourself through that that process um and when you do it you realize that that is exactly how it's been it was done since the, the sort of dawn of time really since the, they discovered fire you know to to cook something to heat something up and and um make it more digestible or you know more interesting to eat mm. that's the sort of bones of that of our of our culinary sort of knowledge isn't it mm. um and it doesn't take anything to go back to that point just gather some some wood and and have some simple ingredients and and just go through the process and and you watch and you learn about things that maybe you didn't think you you would learn about you know you learn about the wind and you know the weather and temperatures and the ground and mm. um how fuel burns and you know why this does that and mm. if i do it like that it it doesn't just like sort of basic sort of science mm. in a way but in a more sort of romantic um you know under a more romantic banner if you like wearing more amazing knitwear <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no it's it's great it's great and i'll i'd take any opportunity i can to cook like that mm. because it's good for you it's good for mm. you Mm. Is that does the wood you choose change the flavour? I mean, or does it change the way it burns? Or um, yes, certainly. I mean, I just use a combination of sort of ash and and beech and oak um, as as a sort of mainstay, and then I I, I burn charcoal as well. I usually do a mixture if I can, so a little bit of charcoal for sort of heat and consistency and, and wood for um, flavour. Mm. That's that lovely smoky quality that it has. Um, when I'm down on the beach, I just pick up the driftwood and, okay. and burn that. So I literally no idea what, what any of that is in terms of you know, tree species. Could be anything, and, but be does anything. it change? That you don't notice a difference in flavour from the, the driftwood fires. It's yeah, the driftwood smoking. fires are occasionally they can be quite unusual the way they the, the, the way they smell. They don't necessarily taint the food in, in any way. It's hard to to guess how long some of these bits of wood have been floating in the ocean or where they've come from. Um, it's anyone's guess, really. Mm. As long as they're dry, they tend to they tend to be. Uh, they tend to burn quite well. I was mm. advised by someone who who really does know their wood that it's not that good to cook over driftwood because of the salt content. Okay. But I've never had a, I've literally never had a problem with it. Well, um, as in it was, it's more combustible. You could get. I a, don't a know. Reaction. Do you know what? I don't know the science behind it. I didn't ever sort of want to sort of dig into it too much <laughs> in case you couldn't make any more driftwood fires <laughs> yeah like, ah. but I, I think it's fine i think i mean there might be something that but yes 
it's great because it's free fuel, you know. Yeah. And it's there and it burns well. So what I do is I, I just take the bare essentials down to down to the beach, some ingredients, pan to cook 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 the food in or a grill to to put it on. And usually you can find sort of dry sort of seagrass um, type roots and uh, you find the dried sea kale plants mm. um, which are perfect for tinder so you don't need to bring newspaper or anything like that they take a, a, a spark really easily so you can make your fire with with that and and driftwood and mm. cook something you know very simple or very elaborate it doesn't really you know you're only limited by your own sort of imagination really and, I remember doing um, a, a festival, doing an outdoor fire pit uh, yeah. cooking. And I thought I would do a cake because I had once made a cake when we were camping uh, and I made it in a cast iron pan. Wow. Uh, and there was something about, I made it with hazelnuts. And so I guess the hazelnuts and the smokiness. And, um, and also what happened in the pan was that the outside really cooked a lot. So you got the kind of, caramelized almost you could say burnt <laughs> but we don't say burnt i don't think people cooking no, fires caramelized is but caramelized yeah. deeply caramelized yeah and then the center was still almost like a you know fondant it was all kind oh, of, wow. you know still soft and i poured a can of coconut milk in and then we just kind of digged it dug in with with spoons and that uh that cake there's no way that I could have made it like that in an oven or even yeah. on a hob top. Yeah, yeah. And there was something about having to watch it constantly rather than I mix up the cake and I pop it in the oven and I put the timer for 20 minutes and then I come back. I had to move it all around the fire and I heated up a lid and put the lid on top and kind of to, mm. to get some heat through the top. And, uh, and again, that kind of smoky flavor that it wasn't even like it was exposed to smoke, but no, the smoke but went there. through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, it was, and, and it was actually a super windy festival. Um, it was a camp festival. I don't know if right. you went to that one anyway. I have um, been, and yes. It, it was the year that it got uh, canceled the day after because the oh, winds yeah. were so strong. And so I would put things down and they'd be blown off the table. I <laughs> do remember. Like, ah! and, um, but, but so there was a kind of an element of battling against nature to make this thing on this fire and then everyone gathering around and being able to kind of dig in and eat it 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 was such a delicious cake mm. and it probably objectively wasn't the most delicious thing i've ever baked but i think that element of there's also a kind of eating something when you're really hungry like you've mm. been for a long walk and then you eat something or the tea that i drink when i come out of the sea it's the best tea i, I will drink all day yeah <laughs> Well, that's it. If you, if you, um, it's all about place. Yeah. It really is the way we think about food. It's so connected to place. We, several years ago, Alice and I went and had a walk. It was a very cold day, and we walked up a stone barrow. Mm. Uh, biting wind. Anyway, we sat down on the bench, and we had a thermos with some lentil soup in it which is literally the most sort of 
easy, um, sort of unexciting lentil soup, um, nothing to write home about. Poured it into the cups and drank it. It's the most delicious thing you've ever eaten. Yeah. Because we were sat outside and the experience was sort of, you know, it was um, it was tenfold in terms of the, the, the sort of, I don't know, the notion and the just what it meant and how it tasted. Yeah, yeah. Well, they do, there are, there have been experiments actually with, I think they did it on planes and um, uh, I think it was actually by a company that was making airplane food and they, they were playing people the sound of being on a plane and seeing how it affected their taste buds and oh. that people were more sensitive to certain things. I think more sensitive to bitterness maybe. Right. And there's also been experiments of playing people sounds uh, and you can actually make people, you could eat the same piece of chocolate with different sounds and it would taste, you know, sweeter or mm, more bitter. Mm, mm. And so that must, there must be something about that, that your whole body is experiencing, you know, the, the wind coming because stone barrow is just above the sea, isn't it? You know, so you yeah. get the wind coming off the sea and it's full of gorse as well. So yeah. you get this kind of scent of coconut mm, blossom, mm, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's a, it's a strangely, um, but kind of, bleak place isn't it, it? Is, somewhere yeah. that's so yeah. kind of lusciously covered yes. in yellow gorse but i totally get that because it is the essence of comfort really isn't it something warm and full of umami and mm. even if it is only a basic lentil soup you kind of you still uh rather than just steaming some vegetables or whatever you put all your energy when you make a soup into the like the sofrito that you start it with mm. or it, it, that getting that caramelization and the umami and then you've got the, the broth and the and so there is actually soup is uh yeah a, a, a uniquely comforting food yes i would definitely agree with that I didn't, when I say I didn't learn from my mum, I didn't learn sort of practical how-to cookery. But I think what I did learn was more important than that, which was about the balance of, of good flavours, the importance of sort of seasoning, the sort of importance of how you take time over a dish and then how it tastes at the end. And uh, it was more sort of this sort of emotional connection to cooking than like oh it needs to be 50 grams not 48 grams you know that mm. was nothing to do with that or scales or it was about watching how the soup bubbles and knowing that when it's like bubbling with that size bubbles it's going to be better than I don't know no that makes sense I mean good. that's that's real cooking, isn't it? And that it actually is. And also it's about your palate, like when people say season it correctly and you, and you think, well, what does that even mean? I mean, seasoning is so subjective, but actually mm. there is a sense of we're working to balance flavors here. So just add a little bit of lemon juice or a little bit of salt or whatever it is to, to make it taste the way that mm. we like our food. And that's what you learn from her, isn't it? It's interesting because when my mum used to cook, 
I used to watch her take a spoon and she'd dip it into whatever it was and she'd taste it and she'd sort of put the food, she'd sort of move her lips like, like that mm. to really get a handle on the, the sort of seasoning and the flavour and to know she was happy with it. And then when I was older and I started cooking and, and before she died, she would take the spoon and she'd, instead of her tasting it, she'd give it to me to taste so I could tell her that it was right or not. It was a very mm. emotional thing. Um, mm. Gosh, that's, that's yeah, really it was, it was it, it was, I don't know, a sort of coming of, you know, this, you, you're the person who needs to tell me now that this is right. I don't, you know, you're, you, you are that, that, that point. You come of age, just passing yeah, the mantle, isn't it? It's like, yeah. like literally passing the spoon to you. How lovely. Yeah, this actually made me feel quite sad. But. I can, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that it's those little moments that are so meaningful and so much of home, isn't it? It's yeah. The, the moment where she passes you the spoon and the being in the kitchen and what everything that that represents about home. Uh, how that's gorgeous there's nothing like uh, the way that food connects you to your heart and I can really relate to that feeling of um, a memory about food taking you straight back into something that you don't even think about every day but that moment when his mum passed him the spoon, oh, pulled at my heartstrings. So it was a gorgeous conversation. I really enjoyed it. I just, everything that Gil stands for, I'm absolutely 100% on board. I hope you enjoyed it too. And uh, you can check him out on Instagram. I'll put all uh, the relevant links in the show notes and you can find all his books in, in all good bookstores and some really rubbish ones as well. Uh, I urge you to, to at least buy one of his books and start cooking in a way that will make you feel really connected to the seasons and the land around you and like we said that's something I think uh, we all crave underneath even if we're stuck in the middle of a city you can find something that connects you back to the seasons and the land and the primal instinct that we all share. So I'll see you back here next week and I hope you have a good one.